Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is Europa Ocho. Hello. Now, I'm going to break the fourth wall temporarily, Ocho, okay? We're just going to pull back the curtain just a little bit. What you may not know, dear listeners, if you're new to the podcast, is that myself and Ocho are not actually recording this in the same studio. Studio in, in italics. So On the same continent. Well, this is... Uh, exactly. Different time zone and all sorts. So, when we start our recordings, because we record these individually, and then Ocho does all manner of wonderful stuff, edits it and so on. So, when we start our recordings, one of us will count down three, two, one for us to start recording. Now, that reminds me that just this week, we got hold of something which unbelievably has eluded us <laughs> all this time. And it was some lovely chap on the internet, his name escapes me, I'm sorry, who tweeted this just the other day, and it was Ted Rogers having released a TV tie-in record about Dusty Bin. I don't know how we didn't even realise that this was a thing. It wasn't like, oh, we know about this, uh, but we just can't track it down anywhere. It's like, and let's face it, we knew about the 321 computer game which was only 16k spectrum game so it's not a great deal of fun i have played it and i didn't get to the end looks like dusty bin was written by alan tew who did the theme for the hanged man which was also reused as a charlie farley and piggy malone theme oh lovely 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 and in case you're not aware by the way gold on cable and satellite are currently showing proper two ronnies because these days you just don't get enough proper to Ronnie's. It's usually a repackage. It's usually the Two Ronnie's sketchbook from 2005 or the recent documentary from Gold or it'll be something like Heroes of Comedy or whatever it may be. But no, 12.40pm lunchtimes, original Two Ronnie's. I think they're from the early series at the moment and well worth capturing if you've got uh, the facilities. Before we get down to it, Ocho, we have a little bit of feedback to respond to. We had a lovely wee tweet from Mish Doherty. Now, apologies, Mish, because I, I don't know if you're Doherty or Doherty. I'm going to go with Doherty, as in Ken Doherty, the snooker player. Mish tweeted us and said, with regard to our discussion on the squirrels, very enjoyable. Thank you, Mish. As for who's Ellis Jones, he's starting this. And he sent us a link to a show which is available on Network DVD called Pardon My Genie. And this is, I believe, a children's show from around about 1972 and starring one Ellis Jones and also Hugh Paddock of Julian and Sandy fame and Roy Barcroft of Muller's Ruin fame. Well, hey. You credit Hugh Paddock with Julian and Sandy rather than one episode of Casanova 73. <laughs> but then you hang Mother's Ruin round Roy Barcroft's neck. Not fair. I could have said Roy Barcroft as often seen with Les Dawson, but that would have been primarily in sketch shows rather than sitcom. And of course, I could have said Roy Barclough as seen all those years in Coronation Street, but that's soap. So therefore, I was looking for a sitcom, and of course, if you're thinking Roy Barclough's sitcom, you're thinking Mother's Ruin. Now, remind me, well, I know we've discussed Mother's Ruin, but have we ever actually done a full-on podcast about Mother's Ruin? No, we haven't. We'll get to that. It might be worth mentioning as well, Ellis Jones is the radar operator in episode one of the Doctor Who story, Spearhead from Space. So I imagine a lot of people will have seen him in that. Interesting. Well, moving on to the business in hand. Ocho, Merry Christmas! Way Crackers! Navidad. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. 
I sang the 1867 tune there, not um, the one that's been changed in subsequent years. What we're talking about, basically, is that we're going to have a lovely little Christmas celebration. But we're not really, because it's not Christmas, because it's October. So It's a podcast. You never know when people are listening. This is true. So if it is Christmas Day, Merry Christmas. And let's face it, we're probably going to tweet a link to this very episode on Christmas Day. So you might be listening to this for the first time. So if it is Christmas Day, Merry Christmas. If it isn't Christmas Day, pretend that it is. So why are we talking about Christmas? We're talking about Christmas because we're going to have, I suppose what you might call... Don't pretend there's a reason. Well, there is a bit. There is a thread that's running through all of these. We're going to have what you might call an alternative Christmas sitcom festival. I don't mean alternative like Channel 4. That's all modern stuff for your 1982 and what have you. No, you can leave that to one side. What we're talking about here, and I'm going to just have a little potted explanation for people who might be listening outside the UK. You know how these days you can't get away from television because it's always there and there's 500 channels just churning out crap left, right and centre and there's just no end to it at all and you can't get away from the information overload and all that kind of thing and eventually it's going to send us all insane. Well, me anyway. Well, back in the day, you had BBC, licence fee, therefore no commercials, and you had ITV commercials. Now, normally, you've got distinct programming on both and you've got BBC doing sort of public service broadcasting that wouldn't be attractive to advertisers. And you've got ITV doing big old coarse things like Sunday Night at the London Palladium and all that kind of stuff. Problem comes at Christmas time because Christmas Eve, 6pm, shops are shut. Nobody's advertising anything. So ITV tended to have its more popular material a few days before Christmas or a few days afterwards. And so that's why you don't tend to get a lot of Christmas ITV comedy, certainly being repeated anyway. You get the odd thing here and there, but nothing like BBC. I mean, BBC, you can just wheel off all the repeats, starting with Only Fools and Horses, that you're going to get every single year. So what we're doing here is we are plundering a four-disc set called ITV Christmas Comedy. So network label. It's been out for a few years, but you can still get it. It's in stock at Amazon at the moment. And they have put together a lovely little selection of, I suppose, what you call ITV PLC. So there's no Thames material in here, but you've got plenty of Granada, plenty of Yorkshire, plenty of London Weekend, and so on. I'm going to rapidly go through the list of what's on the disc, and then I'm going to reveal the three shows that we're going to talk about from this four-disc set. So on here we've got... The Dustbin Men, please, sir, on the buses. All This and Christmas too. Ocho, do you want to give a brief description of what that is? Imagine if Bless This House had no jokes in it. It is supposed to be a comedy, but I've never cracked a smile watching it, and it is generally regarded as very, very low par. We've got Billy Liar, Two's Company, Stanley Baxter's Christmas Box. We've got The Rag Trade, Bless Me Father. You've been watching a bit of Bless Me Father recently, Yes, you? yes, I have. You've been enjoying it. Yes, but I don't know if there's a cast in it. Well, I think it's, it's very that gentle, and the characters are fairly fixed. There isn't really character development, but it's it's a good show to end the night on. It's not too demanding. We've got some earlier material here as well. We've got the Army Game from 1960. We've got George and the Dragon from 66, and then leaping into the future, we have My Husband and I. We'll be talking about Molly Sutton later on. Only When I Laugh, which might be that weird one with the woman doing all the kids' voices. And you've got Hallelujah, 
You're Only Long Twice, Home to Roost, where hey, classic, and Watching from 1987. There's three shows that I haven't mentioned because we're going to talk about them right now. The first I like show the that fact gonna... that you explained an interesting aspect to Christmas broadcasting, but did not explain why we're doing this in October, because there is no reason for us doing this in October. We're just doing it because we can. We're just looking around and said, what have we got on our respective DVD shelves? That thing. Yeah, let's watch that. Take a little break from requests. And the first thing we decided to go for was some Christmas specials. Now, what I've got here in front of me is a selection of listings from the day in question when the free programs that we're going to talk about went out. So we can put all these into context. We can give you a little bit of colour for them. And I actually was going to ask yourself, Ocho, when do you reckon it was? What was the turning point when Christmas viewing turned to shit? But then we've already discussed movies, games and videos on Christmas Day 1993, so we really don't need to go into that, because I think that was precisely the moment when it all turned. And yet, what did we find on YouTube the other day? Oh, starting blocks with Chris Tarrant. Yes! Now, I still maintain that that is a very, very close runner-up purely because... Basically, it's a clip show. It's a clip show with Chris I don't think Tarrant. we've ever discussed this on the podcast. Okay, right. A few months back, we were looking for what is the worst possible programme. And I'm not talking about nowadays. I mean, you could put on, like, any old pish on digital TV these days and it would be a depressing Christmas Day experience. I'm talking about back in the good old days. Three channels, four channels max. What is the least Christmassy thing that you could find on Christmas Day? And when you're going through like the schedules for 60s, 70s, 80s, there's only one instance of something really sticking out like a sore thumb. And unbelievably, it's on BBC One. One of the few episodes of Christmas Night with the Stars which survives in the archive is 1964. And yet, for some reason... 10.25 that night, BBC One. Christmas night is an episode of The Great War, the vast BBC history of the First World War. I don't think it's even that one where they all play football on Christmas Day, which would have been remarkably good timing. It's just an episode of it. Come on, Christmas night. You want Val Dunican having a sing-song. You don't want... At least it's quality programming. Whereas we found out in 1993, ITV showed movies, games and videos in the middle of Christmas Day. <laughs> and while I don't doubt there was Christmas theming involved, it is still somebody reading out press releases over trailers. I still maintain that Starting Blocks with Chris Tarrant, a clip show from 1997 on Christmas Day, is nominally worse than movies, games and videos because movies, games and videos went out at half past 12 in the day where Starting Blocks went out at 9.45pm. Everybody's asleep by then. <laughs> No, but honestly, that is the slot where previously you've had Morecambe and Wise or a Bond film or Raiders of the Lost Ark getting its premiere. I mean, for goodness sake. I'd argue against it because at least there was a studio audience, there was a studio set, there was a modicum of care. Whereas movies, games and videos, you're kind of deprived of human contact. And coming for whatever game system people played in 1993, I can't remember, is this game. And that's going to be certainly a big hit, and it's in the shops from January 5th. It's empty. It's like an infomercial. But it's an infomercial pretending to be, here's a program that's been made by somebody for you. Because it's an infomercial for several products, so somehow that changes the rules. 
in the middle of Christmas Day when you're still sort of awake. You haven't had your lunch yet. You're not dazed. You're still wired from the selection boxes. And we should bear in mind, of course, that for any, I suppose, younger listeners listening in, then they might be sort of thinking, well, you know, people play video games on Christmas Day and what have you. And nowadays, of course, you can go on to, like, the iTunes store and buy games and buy apps on Christmas Day with your vouchers and what have you. But, of course, this is 1993 we're talking about, so the shops are shut. So every single one of these video games that's been advertised is not available to you today. At the very, very earliest, they'll be available to you tomorrow, and in some regions, probably not until the 27th. So here's some amazing movies, games, and videos, none of which you can have. Merry Christmas. Actually, Christmas Day 1993 was a Saturday. It was. So the shop's definitely shut on Boxing Day. (laughs) Of course, that's one of those weird years, isn't it? With the curious Christmas Oh, of course, yes. Yes, so Boxing Day is Monday. So some places will still be shut because it's... (laughs) So you're waiting till the 28th. You can wait till Tuesday. That's brilliant. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, okay, no, I'm going to... Oh, I'll admit it now. I'll admit it once and for all. That's the worst. Hey. Movies, games, and videos. 12... Oh, we have actually... We, we've only seen... I mean, what is it? What, three seconds worth? We stumbled across on YouTube the other day, but if we ever get hold of the full copy, rest assured, I know it isn't a sitcom, but we will actually do a podcast on the entire... Hey, movies, sitcoms. Videos. I remember those. So. Now, hang on a second, because I'm going off on a tangent here, aren't I? So, okay, what is the first item from the selection box? From Granada Television, it's nearest and dearest, Cindernelli is the title of the episode. Now, this was originally transmitted on the 21st of December 1972. In opposition to this was the 9 o'clock news. If you're looking for a sort of entertainment, then you've either got that, or on BBC Two you've got War and Peace. And this seems to be some sort of television adaptation. It's not the film. Nearest and Dearest is not exactly what you'd call a classic in the same vein as, say, Faulty Towers, for example. But given the opposition, if you're looking for a bit of light entertainment, then I think we'll go with it. It has been sampled by the Dukes of Stratosphere, psychedelic alter egos of XCC. One thing that we should check, and I know it's just an error, I'm only riffing, but listings for this date, nearest and dearest, 9pm on ITV, except Fjords and Grampian, who actually have it at 8.45 and have it for an additional 15 minutes. Now, do we actually think that there was an extra part to this nearest and dearest (laughs) episode that was only for Fjords and Grampian? I imagine they just got a bunch of piffs. (laughs) What piffs with Hilda Baker and Jimmy Jewell? Yeah, that, now that will be something. They finish at the same time as everybody else, so presumably this is 15 minutes being bolted onto the front, so it's all going to be, all the talk is going to be just inconsequential. It's going to have nothing to do with the plot whatsoever, and actually I'm wondering, will they even be in character, or perhaps it's just them in the 15 minutes before they started the recording in the studio. That'd be interesting to see. You don't get a lot of studio tapes turning up. On well, would they have TV been talking day. in the studio? Well, no, this is the thing, because we have to address this issue. Nearest and Dearest ran, I believe, from 68 to 73. There's also a film, 1972 as well. We're going to have to look into this in depth, and I think we will actually have a look at a little collection of these episodes on the cast one day. And the heading for that episode will be Sitcom Stars Not Speaking to One Another. And as we understand it, 
there are some episodes towards the end of the run where Jimmy, Joel and Hilda Baker don't appear on set together. And yet they still find some ingenious ways of communicating with each other. This is just a rumour we've heard. And I would throw in the caveat that the episode we watched is the first show of the last series. And they're interacting as normal, as far as we can tell. Yeah, but it's Christmas, isn't it? Oh, you think they laid their differences aside, especially for Christmas? I'm not so sure this really works that way. <laughs> especially this is probably recorded in the middle of August. Yes. So the concept behind Nearest and Dearest is a brother and sister inherit a pickle factory, and that's it, really. They don't like each other, they bicker. It's not the most baroque of concepts. I just realised now, I really want to see the film. The film's from 1972. Do you reckon that they do the sort of Peter Sellers and... Orson Welles business. That'd be something. So we've got our central characters in the years and years. You just described them. Nelly and Eli Pledge, brother and sister. Now you've also got Joe Gladwin from TV's Last of the Summer Wine, probably better known from, and also the Whackers as well. And you've also got the Tattersalls. Madge Hindle speaks. Edward Marlin doesn't speak. And I've noticed that there is a sort of a thread running through Hilda Baker's work that she quite often has a mute sidekick to play off. I don't really see much developing from this. Her friend tells her what the bloke has been doing, and Nelly just repeats it. Did you? Is that what you did? Oh, um. It's only in this show. And not on your Nelly, there was a certain element of misunderstanding, and I guess you got some gay jokes in there, because it was Gilbert and George, and George would explain what Gilbert was doing, or vice versa. But in this, it, it just seemed to be repeating what the last thing that was said, but in that kind of hearing aid voice. Speaking of not new Nelly, same episode of Casanova 73 with Pardon My Genie's Hugh Paddock has also got David Rayner from Not New Nelly. There you go. How they are related. That sounds like I'm really down on Nearest and Dearest. There's something here I like. Okay, I didn't find it very funny. <laughs> I found it historically interesting because this is Music Hall and it's so way out of time. Have you ever seen Mother Riley Meets the Vampire? No, I've seen some of that's the That's astounding because that feels even more trapped in amber than Nearest and Dearest. You're looking, thinking, did they have talkies in the 1870s? Because <laughs> some of this feels like I'm watching stuff from before Gus Eland was around. <laughs> and there's something here. I'm going to go all Radio 4 on you. I've never actually read the essay. There is an essay by George Orwell called The Art of Donald McGill about seaside postcards. But I've seen it quoted in a different book where it talks about this is the worm's eye view where marriage is a bad joke. And there is something in there. It's it's a bit vital. It's just loud and stupid. But if I keep going... I'm going straight into Sood's Corner, but let's just say that there's something historically interesting about it that you can see parts of the 19th century. I'm sure if you squinted, you might see the 17th century. You might see Commedia dell'arte or all that stuff. I mean, mainly it's Joe Gladwin without his top setting going. <laughs> oh, well, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that in this show, but surely at some point with the fact that he doesn't seem to have a full set of teeth and his upper lip protrudes, doesn't he look old in this? I mean, way older than he looks 10 years later in Leicester the Summer Wine. I know what you mean about the something about it. I found that this had a bit of the spats effect for me that I just 
for whatever reason, I just liked the situation. And it's not hysterically funny, especially when Hilda Baker's mangling her lines and what have you half the time. But I just enjoy the setup. And yeah, it's comfort viewing. It just feels like home. And you know you're not going to fall off your chair laughing at it, but then how many shows do you really do that with? And I liked the clash of some of the, what we might laughingly call pop cultural references. That was the great thing. You're watching this very old-fashioned setup, and then I think Walter Tattersall walks in, or Joe Gladwin's character walks in, and Eli goes, oh, it's Mission Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) It's just left there. I like that, though. <laughs> the, the example I gave before we started recording was, you can just imagine somebody walks in and Eli goes, oh, here he comes, Breaking Bad. <laughs> I'd like to see those become more and more left field as time goes on. I'd like to see him come <laughs> in and he says, oh, here he comes, Sandy Gall. <laughs> And don't forget, of course, that we have a special guest star. John Barry! Sergeant Cork himself. Sergeant Cork is the greatest character to have first appeared on television in 1963. Accept no substitutes. Do you want to explain a little bit what Sergeant Cork is for those of us who are uninitiated? Well, I like the story about how it was commissioned. Ted Willis, former communist and eventual peer of the realm, had created Dixon of Doc Green. Dixon of Doc Green's interesting if you want to go all sued corner on it, actually, because while nowadays it's seen as very comforting and father knows best 50s paternalism, there is an element, it starts in the blue lamp, the movie, there's this element of the policeman is a working man and should be respected as a working man. He's part of the social contract, if you want, if you want to argue that. Anyway. So Ted Willis has made his name because he's created Dixon of Doc Green. It's a television phenomenon. And he has a meeting scheduled with Lou Grade, and he has an idea. I don't know what the idea was. I don't know if the idea is lost to history. But anyway, he's going to pitch an idea for a series. And Lou Grade isn't particularly enthusiastic about the idea. So I assume he takes a big draw on his cigar and says, Do you have any other ideas? And Willis doesn't have any other ideas. And he just goes, Victorian policeman. Ah, I like that. <laughs> we get Sergeant Cork, because it's like, you know, handsome cabs, Jack the Ripper, and the beginnings of the CID. John Barry's just fantastic charisma, really great chemistry with William Gaunt, who plays his sidekick. And it's very watchable. And... Thank you to Network DVD, because not only did they put it out, as they put it out, we found out that episodes thought lost were not lost. The entire series exists. This came a point when everybody's going, well, the next series might only be two discs. Oh, hang on a minute. No, it's all there. I think by series four, everyone goes, I think pretty much series five and six are going to be all there as well. And John Barry is in Nearest and Dearest as a grand old actor manager of a type that... Did those types really exist in 1972? Maybe. And he is supposed to be down at heel. And he persuades them to put on a pantomime and invest all their money in it. How's that going to go, boys and girls? <laughs> characters never seen before is collecting dosh from our characters, from our regular characters. 
I was going to say, I don't want to give spoilers away, but let's face it, you've already worked out what's going to happen. So (laughs) really, I don't think spoilers are really an issue in this case. By the way, just to make one further reference to the cast, I was just looking down the other names and we've got like a landlord and we've got a couple of other people in it. And then we've got Charles Pemberton as man. (laughs) Now, was that his specialist area? If you're looking for a man, well... Charles is your man. That was his slogan. That was his catchphrase. I thought you were going to mention Deirdre Costello, who is also in I Didn't Know You Cared, as Linda Preston, the sex siren. As we spoke about, I think that there is just a nice, overall, warm, fuzzy feeling to Nearest and Dearest. And I think that... Okay, we're joking about it. It's it's vulgar stuff. I mean, the old pepper pots in the audience are... Wetting themselves. Yes, that, that's the thing. that the, the, the audience for this is really hyper. And you do notice occasionally, you do actually spot like specific episodes of sitcoms where, for whatever reason, the audience for that particular recording was just really high. And because for a certain section of the audience, up. it's filthy. And there's the, the standard pantomime joke, 3,000 miles and still no sign of dick. I'm going to say that there are actual Victorians in the audience. 1972. There'll be people in there of a grand old age. And it will be an enormous release. They don't know about the permissive society. So they've come from this buttoned down... Are you laughing at my points? Are you still laughing at No Sign of Dick? No, I I was actually laughing at No Sign of Dick. Okay. (laughs) So maybe I am one of those Victorians. Something I'd really, really like to see. Thicker Than Water, the American remake of Nearest and Dearest. That's something to keep an eye out for, because I can't imagine how it translates at all. Are there any recognisable names in the cast list? Julie Harris and Richard Long. I might know them if I saw them, but those names aren't ringing any bells with me either. They're called Nellie and Ernie Payne. The US version was not successful and was cancelled after 13 episodes. Oh, blimey. I mean, mind you, some of the American adaptations that we've heard of don't get past the pilot stage. I tell and you, I'm finding indeed. it increasingly difficult to find a British sitcom that ran for more than two series that wasn't tried. Nearest and Dearest has got to be in the top ten most unlikely, and yet they gave it a try. Yeah, and we did discuss previously Beans of Boston. I suppose Comrade Dad and Hile Honey, I'm Home are unlikely to get translated, but there's a lot of stuff out there, and I still say that the show that was probably least likely to get translated to the US in its own time would be Citizen Smith, because I don't think you'd say, hey, he's a lovable silly communist. Especially those opening titles, I don't know what series is, where, they, where they've got tanks and they're throwing <laughs> grenades at garden gnomes. It's like, okay... <laughs> Now, what was that little article you sent me the other day about another US adaptation of a popular UK series? There was, apparently, a US attempt at the young ones. And, as often happens, one of the cast is held over. Nigel Planer is still playing Neil. He didn't have a good time, from what I've heard. Well, that's a similar situation with the IT crowd, just attempted over the last couple of years as well. Well, we'll move on to our next one, though... Listeners, if you can think of any more unlikely British sitcoms to be translated to the US, ones that did or ones that didn't, we'd like to hear about it. But I'm still going to hold Citizen Smith as the A material. You know that I'm really resisting the urge to sing the theme tune to the next programme that we're going to discuss. 
The theme tune, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The theme tune to That's My Boy is the only piece of music that takes longer to listen to than it did to write. <laughs> Are we breached any copyright? rules if I give a rendition I think there's a bit of fair use involved so okay are you you ready are you just going to sing it raw or do you want me to double track it and put some reverb on for you oh yeah no no, if you do that yeah yeah, that'd that'd be nice okay right here we go right now I'm going to do it faithfully that's my boy 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 right who the hell was that still have a spare vocal going off in the background that's my boy that's my boy we're keeping that Right, no. That's My Boy is the flip side of Nearest and Dearest. It's northern and it's vulgar and it's rubbish. I may have mentioned this previously, but what the hell, I'm going to say it again. There is a lovely little clip of continuity, I think, from Transdiffusion on YouTube. And the announcer says, starting in 15 minutes on Channel 4 is Jules Holland and Paula Yates in The Tube, where hey, with all those fab groovy sounds. Whereas here on ITV, it's That's My Boy! Was anybody ever in a pickle as to which one to opt for? Oh, if only I'd got one of those newfangled VCRs because they would have been perfect right now. I just don't know which one to plump for. What's wrong with That's My Boy? Why aren't we warm to this? This just felt a little bit like wading through treacle. I don't want to be unfair to like individuals or anything like that, but I do feel that Molly Sugden is not really getting a great deal of support from the rest of the cast. I mean, in a show like Are You Being Served, for example, she's got lots of big personalities to play off. Whereas I find that the boy in That's My Boy and his missus and so on, and just like the other cast members, it's just like, it's just very, it's very plain, and just moderately irritating, but not in a comedic way. Molly Sutton can't really carry the entire thing, so partly I think that's what's sort of letting it down, is that the other characters are just, it's not that they're not humorous, they're just not really anything, they're just... I mean, Harold Goodwin's usually quite reliable, but... Yeah, everybody seems a bit dead behind the eyes. I'd say Harold Goodwin's an exception in, in this instance. I think he comes across quite well. But generally speaking, it's just like our son and his missus are just going to have their drab conversation. It's like you took them out of an early episode of Emmerdale Farm and just transplanted them straight into this. But you didn't really change any of their dialogues. You didn't give them anything funny to say. I have an idea. Okay. There's really supposed to be a class clash in this show. Because the idea is is that this man who was adopted as a child and has grown up in a nice upper-middle-class family has been reunited with his birth mother, who is Molly Sugden. With hilarious consequences, that's the term I'm looking for. I think the upper-middle classes in the 80s were a bit too boring. I think the upper-middle classes now, really, I think that's the problem from the 80s onwards. Nobody's pretentious enough are uptight enough, they're just kind of there. They have nice expensive toys and they might occasionally watch BBC Two. But compare that with My Old Man, where the middle-class son-in-law is going to this wine bar 
and has to act very camp to fit in. Vodenton, because that's the way things are in the 70s, things are loosening up. Guys have got long hair and wearing wide ties. The likely lads, the way the hairdressers has changed. Let's use the phrase again, the permissive society. So there's that, but there would also be opportunities for people to still be a little bit 1950s. How dare you? If this is a joke, it is in very poor taste. (laughs) That kind of behaviour. By the late 80s, everybody's trying to be a bit too... Yeah, I just go with the flow. I'm. They just well, they have like leg warmers instead of Abel Gaunt's, which they mispronounced on Man About the House. <laughs> they didn't make that mistake in Freeze Company because I don't think they actually mentioned. So yeah, that's. I, I did like the bit where Molly Sugden used the phrase "Ooh, the Machiavellian cow." <laughs> Well, I agree with you. I think that there are a lot of sitcoms from the late 80s and this was something that ITV sort of caught as if it was some sort of contagious bug that are just crushingly bland. I don't think middle class is quite the right term to use. I suppose you could say like upper middle class, professional class, whatever you want to call it. And we always reference Trouble in Mind as a sort of the go-to example of this. But, I mean, there's plenty of other shows, particularly from the late 1980s and there's a lot of them on BBC One as well where it's just very it's just it's not something you have really a strong opinion about because there's nothing in it that's going to provoke any opinion from you. And I think that the characters and That's My Boy, particularly Boy, uh, to give him his full name, (laughs) I think, yeah, he just sort of comes across as if he is in the middle of some tea time soap opera. And what it really needs... Okay, a little bit of recasting for you here. Okay? This is a bit unusual, but I think we should stick with it for a moment and then we'll bomb it out and say, no, that was a bloody stupid idea. Trevor Bannister as his son. I've never seen Trevor Bannister play a semi-posh character before, so I can't imagine it. I've really only ever seen him as Mr. Lucas and Heavy Breathing. Okay. Nicholas Lindhurst. I think even he might struggle a bit. He didn't exactly set the world alight in the two of us. And he's got nothing to apologise for in his career. But the two of us was not really a good use of him. Is the two of us a good example of exactly what you were talking about there? Having just... Twee's the wrong word, but it's just wallpaper it's it's just there middle class problems and issues but not in the way that Teddy and June ramps it up to a living for example you don't have anything as outrageous as that it's just you've got awkward social situations and oh dinner party that's a good name for a show oh dinner party so basically the plot of That's My Boy is they haven't got turkey so they get a turkey but it's frozen and they try and defrost it with hair dryers now, that actually was a spoiler that I just gave you there because that's how the episode ends. Because nothing happens. Well, there is a bit with a live turkey, isn't there? Somebody well, yes. brings in a live turkey and then the live turkey gets taken away again and... Killed and then frozen. And, oh, the boss is coming to dinner. For some reason, this house has three hair dryers, Or is it four or five? They seem to have more hair dryers than even... I think the upper middle class household of the late 80s would have had. And they don't make any noise. In fact, they don't appear to be plugged in. 
There's a real lack of care and craft, isn't there? I mean, if you look closely enough, you can probably see one of the 13 amp plugs just hanging off the end of one of them. But hang on a second. Boss coming to dinner. Live bird running around. Are you sure you're not getting That's My Boy mixed up with That's My Boy? Ah, we'll do that properly sometime. Let's not get too distracted. Maybe we'll do that as an old school. We'll just focus on that one episode of That's My Boy, made by ABC with Jimmy Clitheroe. If you want to see social awkwardness and class clashes done properly in the late 80s, Duty Free. How many series did that run? Free series plus a Christmas special. And is, of course, a Duty Free Christmas that we're going to discuss right now. I'm going to put this into a little bit of context as far as the day itself is concerned. Because this went out on Christmas night. This is the only one of the free programmes that we're discussing today that actually went out on Christmas Day. This is a bit of an oddity as far as Christmas night viewing is concerned because as we established earlier on ITV didn't tend to put a great deal of effort into their Christmas day schedule occasionally there are some instances you know the odd one here and there where suddenly there's a spike in enthusiasm and interest and so on but on this particular occasion duty free was just one hour away from I think what is still one of the largest UK television audiences of all time. Because as soon as Juicy Free finished, everybody switched over to BBC One and watched EastEnders. Den and Angie, you know, that one. And it was was something ridiculous, like 30 million viewers or something like that, wasn't it? I think that's probably rolling the omnibus into the viewing figures, but even so, I mean, it was just something absurd. It was just absolutely off the charts. Christmas Day 1986. Previously on Christmas Day, you'll have had your Bond film and Markham Wise, and we're now into the era where we've got Only Fools and Horses and what have you. So you're pretty much thinking Christmas Day is going to be all manner of wehe, light-hearted entertainment, all fun and games and what have you. I'm not even going to touch on the plot of EastEnders that year, but it was a bit of a downer. Then you think, okay, well, hang on, to perk yourself up, no worries, because it's going to be an all manner of hilarity episode of Only Fools and Horses. Way hey. Hang on a second. What's going on here? Del Boy's breaking Rodney's hand with a claw hammer. What's going on? Okay, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't quite do that, but we've talked about a Royal Flush previously. We actually discussed the two different versions of a Royal Flush, and the version that went out on this day is that one with no audience. Del referencing Rodney's drugs conviction. Exact quote in the middle of the dinner party and so on, you might be thinking, I feel a little bit cheated on this particular Christmas day. If you're a fan of Miss Marple, brilliant. If you're not, you're going to be going over to ITV for presumably something a bit more light-hearted. Now, you've got to wade your way through the Bond film that isn't a Bond film, Never Say Never Again, at half past six, for two and a half fun-filled hours. And then finally, we get to GTV Christmas at nine o'clock. Do we want to reveal the dirty secret of this episode? Yes, let's go ahead and tear the veil asunder. They're in Spain, but one person isn't. Do you know what? I'm not even going to say who it was. I'm going to leave that for listeners to watch A Juicy Free Christmas and see, because it is actually pretty well done. See if you can spot which member of the principal cast is not in Spain throughout the episode. Like I say, we watched the whole thing. The first time we watched this was about, what was it, a year ago? It was bizarrely on the 3rd of January, 
brilliant timing for a Christmas special. The only way it could be worse was if he watched it half past seven on the Monday morning before he had to go back to work. We watched this all, and then we found out afterwards that cast member X wasn't in Spain because cast member X was doing a play in the UK at the time. And we didn't spot any of that going on. So, yeah, it was pretty well done. It was pretty well disguised. This one's weird. It's got the same Only Fools and Horses. Oh, and actually, Only Fools and Horses was a mixture, wasn't it? It was studio and film. Yeah, that's what makes that Only Fools and Horses even more unsettling, is that you've got VT, studio, the usual traditional set, but suddenly it's turned into play for today. Whereas Duty Free is all on film, but we still have no audience. Fortunately, Duty Free is played nice and broad. There are occasional bits where David, played by Keith Barron, has little fantasies about Linda. Imagining himself in different standard romantic scenarios. you were going to say positions. He's pretending to be the milk tray man, or he's a great gypsy guitarist. But before we get these fantasies, we have Keith Barron staring down the lens. Mm. (laughs) He doesn't make that noise, but his face (laughs) conveys that noise. And it's great, and I don't think it's one of those where, in spite of their best intentions, it came out weird. I don't think they cared. Come on, something silly's going to happen. It doesn't matter if something immediately before that's a bit peculiar. Right, you know, I just mentioned a minute ago that they had the Bond film on before this. You know the way that ITV, when they were showing films around about this period of time, they would have a still on a rostrum camera that they could then fade in before and after the commercial breaks. And so it would be usually something like perhaps like the movie poster or something like some sort of amended version of that. If only that had been the brake bumper for this, Keith Barron just staring off into the distance, but also <laughs> at you as well at the same time. And that just faded up before they go into a break. That'd be lovely, wouldn't it? And also it features in all the trailers for the entire day. Oh, by the way, it's also the front cover of the TV Times. <laughs> And the Radio Times. No text. <laughs> For those of you who are not... Oh, come on, everybody knows the plot of Duty Free. And if you don't, it doesn't really matter, does it? Right, so David and Amy are married, but David is trying to have it away with Linda, who's married to Robert. They're two couples who are on holiday in Spain, seemingly forever. And we've also got Carlos, the waiter. We've got a couple of other appearances from people who aren't normally in Duty Free. A couple of other sitcom stalwarts and all manner of different shows over the years, John Barron and Damaris Heyman as Sir Geoffrey and Lady Stoneley Jackson. David is a monster. In this. He is a bit, yes. No, seriously. They're in Spain again. This must be their third holiday there. I think the first two series were just meant to be one holiday. And he's just decided that they're going to stay over for Christmas. This was not their plan. They have children. We don't establish how old the children are, but he persuades Amy, let's stay in Spain for Christmas and leave the children, I think, to another family member, not to their own devices. He's already booked the hotel. He has bought his prospective mistress a Christmas present and he shows it to his wife to get her approval. This is like that Peter Sellers biopic with (laughs) Jeffrey Rush. He's... ah. There's no word for it. Amy does get her revenge to a certain extent. Oh, actually, no, there's one bit that's kind of tragic. Breaking of the wishbone, making a wish. 
I think isn't that an excuse for maybe another one of David's fantasies? But he's got his eyes shut this time, which means it's really filthy. <laughs> even even he can't bear to look. And he opens his eyes, and Amy said, "The wish didn't come true, did?" And he goes, "How do you know?" And she said, "I'm still here." Oh boy! And she doesn't say that in like a cutting way. It's like <sighs> I really hope that Last of the Duty Free did something to assuage the terrible feelings that all right-thinking humans have <laughs> towards David. Okay, why does Amy oh. tolerate David? Yeah, I don't understand that. Really, she should have ditched him once he showed her the sculpture. It's a small statue based around the lovers. I think it's the lovers, isn't it? What, you mean Richard Beckinsale? Not Richard Beckinsale. No, no, no. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I know. A famous yeah, statue yeah. of a couple of people in the nip kissing. <laughs> And that was a, that's a proper title, but that was, history that, was has decided actually, to call it The Lovers. Was that a direct quote from Arthur Nikas? <laughs> actually, no, he said snogging. <laughs> he dropped the G, he said snogging. said, hey, they're having a good time, aren't they? Why? And uh, he wasn't on the following week. No. <laughs> had to have a lie down with a damp cloth. <laughs> I won't tell you where he had the damp cloth, but it did the job. <laughs> Well, hang on, was this on television? In place of the Antiques Roadshow, was Arthur Negus with a damp cloth for an hour? How is he getting to levitate like that? There was a show called Arthur Negus Enjoys. <laughs> and, <laughs> really, honestly. And he went to different towns. I just remember the CFAX listing once, it was, so it's just the title in which town. I just, so you just got the Arthur Negus enjoys badminton. <laughs> what were we talking? Do you, oh, yes, do you, do you yes. <laughs> So, personally, I'm disgusted <laughs> with David's behaviour. Why is there so much evil in the world? <laughs> okay, right. Let's put forward a theory as to why Amy stays with David. Does Amy stay with David because she sort of knows deep down that David wouldn't? Even if Linda was to walk in and say, right then, big boy, drop him, he couldn't do it. I think there's a lot of similarity between David and Bob in The Likely Lads. I don't think that he's necessarily lacking in intent, but I don't think that he could go through with it, ultimately. And I suspect that Amy knows that, and so she knows that even though he's going to be a pain in the arse, and as you say, sometimes quite thoughtless, he's not actually going to go through with it. I think she stays with David because... He's not Peter Blake. ...the show demands it. I'm not saying this is a lack of skill or care on Eric Chappell's part. It's just one of those shows where... Look, here's the setup. Let's just watch it play out. I think it's one of those I don't think anybody's giving it that much thought because it's just broad it's one of those where if you really did think about it too much you would fall to bits Robert would have fed David his own teeth a long time ago actually that gets a bit bleak as well Robert's talking about how his mother died on Christmas day that's another thing that makes the atmosphere peculiar there's another element that doesn't work there's there's supposed to be the class clash of Robert and Linda are dead posh and Amy and David are dead common, especially Amy. David has pretensions to social climbing. Amy's not so fussed. They put in these characters, the Stonely Jacksons, that Linda's desperate to impress. 
but the Stanley Jacksons don't seem to do much. They're kind of like those... I know it's not quite the right word because it's a married couple, but they're like the dowager figures you get in 1930s Hollywood comedies, the Margaret Dumont type, but they don't react to much. We don't get to know them. We don't know if they're particularly nasty or particularly nice or especially uptight. We just know that they're throwing a party. Uninvited guests turning up would be a bad thing. And uninvited guests turn up. Amy misbehaves herself in front of them and insults them, and I don't think they've done enough in the plot to deserve it. All they've really done is thrown a rival party and been slightly stuffy. Do you think that this episode suffers from the requirement to fit a 60-minute slot? Yes, there's yes, more, it's too long. There's more in this than you'd normally get in 24 minutes, but there isn't enough for 55 minutes, for example. I think the bit on the donkey. Yes. David on a donkey in a Santa suit <laughs> is is the bit where it's like, that's pure padding. It also has an unusual structure as well. The two commercial breaks, because at this time you only have two commercial breaks in a one-hour ITV program, whereas nowadays you get three. The two commercial breaks, I think, happen within the first half an hour. So then you've got a very long part three which, again, I understand why it's done like that, because it's trying to split up the various scenes, but... I thought it was just trying to make the audience wet themselves. <laughs> you think a break's coming up, don't you? And he had a few too many Harvey's Bristol creams because it's <laughs> Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah, you got another thing coming, mate. <laughs> well, I think scenes, for example, such as the party that they throw themselves, that goes on a bit. Before they then get yes. to the big party. It's, it's again, mo- it, Linda doesn't come across particularly well, though. She turns up almost determined to not enjoy Amy's party. Yes, Amy does play a vulgar gag on Linda, but Robert's kind of enjoying himself. There is that suggestion. There's a little bit of chemistry between Robert and Amy. I would have liked to have seen that be the ending, really. How much oil could a gum boil? No, hang on. How much oil could a gumboil boil if a gumboil could boil oil? It's not a particularly complex tongue twist. Well, I just it's fell not over like it. the sixth sheep's sixth sheep's sick, which what I struggle with. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, well, that's a good tongue twister. The sixth sheep's sixth sheep's sick. Now again, that sounds like one of your cartoons you would have got on Christmas morning. <laughs> yes. What is the model of this tale? French Canadian. <laughs> I, I did watch uh, the Christmas Martian the other day for some reason. No, for no reason. <laughs> when are we going to review Mr. Kruger's Christmas with Jimmy Stewart? So for me, the the perfect ending for this, never mind Mr. Kruger, the perfect ending for this would have been for David and Linda to finally get some time alone. They dash up to the hotel room. They're both convinced that Robert and Amy are busy, respectively. They get into the hotel room, they turn on the light, and on the pillow... There's a note from Robert saying, Linda, it's over. And Amy and I, no, what, what am I saying? That's a terrible... That's, <laughs> it's, look, it's moderately more funny than EastEnders, but not by much. You know, sorry, Eric Chappell knew what he was doing with the ending that they went with. But I tell you, that conga is interminable. It does go on. Actually, it's the fact that they're talking to each other through the conga like nobody would notice. <laughs> well, everybody's too busy congering. This hasn't been a very coherent recap, and it's not a very coherent show, but I liked it. 
on balance, I quite enjoyed this episode, and I think I actually enjoy it a little bit more than a run of the mill episode of Duty Free. Funnily enough, it's never really been a show that I've massively got into. In the same way as we've spoken about big screen adaptations previously, I do quite like shows which, for whatever reason, they deviate from their standard production style in the course of a series. And it is quite a switch to go from VT studio audience atmosphere to one that's all on film with no audience. It almost feels like just an An all location. Yes, it just feels like an entirely different program. I don't think there's too many instances of that happening. I mean, the obvious ones are things like Only Fools and Horses we've just spoken about before, when you get the Christmas special that's longer and there's no audience there and so on. Otherwise, I'm struggling to think of too many examples of this. I think it's something that's more associated perhaps with sitcoms of the 1980s because previously you had big screen adaptations and then latterly you'd have, for example... You said this on Last of the Summer Wine. The extended Christmas special becomes the movie as was in the 70s. How did you enjoy your Christmas viewing with ITV? It was okay. It was actually better than I was expecting because... ITV sitcoms, generally speaking, you know, they don't have a great reputation, and I think that's unfair to an extent, but especially when you put together ITV sitcom plus Christmas time on ITV, you might sort of think, oh, this is going to be pretty grim. But actually, no, they, all three of these shows were perfectly good, and you'd have a nice little lineup for ITV3 if they decide to put all these on. Why is an ITV3 show in nearest dearest, for goodness sake? Come on. Hey! It's part of the Granada archive. You've got access to it. Yeah, slap it on. We're going to have to review Never the Twain at some point as well because that's getting a repeat. I'm running ITV free at the moment as well. Overall, did you enjoy Christmas Day with ITV? Yes. Overall, yes. Got a bit grim in the middle. Hang on a second. We didn't even mention that, of course. Dear listeners, earlier on this evening, as part of our research for this episode, I sent Ocho a link... Oh, yes. To an IMDb page about. <laughs> it wasn't this specific episode of Nearest and Dearest that we talked about today. It was a. It was a different Christmas special, it was, though. Yes. What did this page say? Some heroic individual has gone through the individual episodes of Nearest and Dearest on the IMDb, because each individual episode has its individual listing as well as the series. And where they have seen fit, they've gone to the connections page and mentioned pertinent references to other shows made in Nearest and Dearest. And at some point, Nellie mentions Callan, because <laughs> she has a crush on that Edward Woodworm. <laughs> it's not quite Father Dear Father meets Callan, but it'll do for me. If there is anything that you would like us to discuss, Gus, on The Sitcom Club, you can tweet us at The Sitcom Club, although I'm sure you're following us on Twitter by now, are you not? And also, you can find us on Facebook. We're under The Sitcom Club on Facebook. You can get hold of all the previous episodes of The Sitcom Club, and by now there are around about sort of 55 or so. There's bloody loads of them. Good Some old. of them aren't about sitcoms, though. Well, yeah, yeah. That's including the summer recess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah offshoots and all, and all manner of things. Tons of material in there going back 18 months or so. You can find all of that at sitcomclub.com. Next week, it's an edition of our occasional series, The Sitcom Club Meets, where we will be interviewing Nigel Planer. 
very well known for a manner of comedic roles over the last 30 years or so, including, of course, as Neil in The Young Ones. So that's Nigel Planer on the show next week. In the meantime, thanks very much indeed for listening to The Sitcom Club. <laughs>